everybody. Welcome. Uh, Zach and his family are traveling on a well-earned vacation, so uh, we hope that this is good for them. But for us, we're going to continue moving forward in the Abraham story. Uh, like always, we'll be doing Q&R, so if you have any questions, you can go to slido.com and type in RevCDA, and I will do my best to interact with these questions. Otherwise, Zach is always great about addressing them in the weekly emails. Okay. If you haven't already, turn with your Bibles to Genesis 17. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew ahead of you, and it's on page 12. Uh, Let's spend a few more minutes in prayer. God, thank you for um, just the vastness of your word. Lord, I thank you that we can come together thousands of years later and still see truth in this. Um, We just pray that you would help to uh, illuminate what you're telling us here and now. God, we pray that your word would bury deep in our hearts and grow fruit, that it would empower us to obediently partner with you and um, to effect change in this community and in your world according to your, your redemption and your plan and your will. We thank you and we praise you. We ask that you would give us hearts to understand and pray that you would speak through me and... Um, use me to communicate this, but Holy Spirit, we give this time to you that it's your message, and I just pray that you would guide it and direct it like you have always been faithful in doing. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, who wants to talk about circumcision? You know, it is a little concerning uh, hearing my wife say that word so many times in a row. (laughs) Uh, And I'm not sure, but she didn't seem to mind saying it that much either. Um, today's sermon is going to be a little bit longer than I originally planned, but I didn't think the uncut version was appropriate. (laughs) Thank you. you. Sorry, Zach said it was okay, so that won't be the last. (laughs) Before we get started, I just want to remind us that Genesis is very, very rich literature. Uh, There's a lot here to unpack. Uh, You'll hear me refer more than once to the fact that this was written to an audience long ago, and there are ideas and things in here that we might normally just gloss over, but it's very beautiful and very important. So I highly recommend rereading through this book and finding resources that would help illuminate some of these things. As a start, I find the Bible Project app is really helpful. It kind of walks through um, the way it was designed to be read and tries to help contextualize it for the way we're supposed to understand it now. Uh, But for today, we're going to kind of take a 30,000-foot view, and we're going to touch on four central ideas that are woven throughout the chapter. The first being, God is clarifying the covenant and renaming Abraham and Sarah. The second, God's conditions for that covenant. The third, God's blessings and faithfulness to Abraham and Sarah and all his descendants. And then finally, Abraham's response. So, verses 1 and 2. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him, saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. All right. Well, we start off with a quick update from the author. Abraham is 99 years old. This means it's been almost 25 years since, the first, since he first promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation. And it's been about 13 or 14 years since Abraham and Sarai 
took matters into their own hands using Hagar as the surrogate to get the son that they were expecting. The chapter starts off with a divine speech where God reaffirms the covenant. The covenant that he established in chapter 15 based on the promises and made in, originally in chapter 12. But this time, he is going to be giving more detail and revealing what Abraham's part is in this covenant. In this chapter, our focus is moved from Abraham and Sarai as the lead characters to God, who is the one who is truly responsible for delivering on his promise. God is doing most of the talking while Abraham or Abram only responds twice, once verbal and the other with action. Verse three, Abraham fell down, Abram fell down, and God spoke with him. As for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. So in ancient Hebrew culture, names were very significant. A name wasn't just what you were called, like we're more familiar with today. It was a statement of your character, your value, or who, of who you were, or even the hopes and aspirations that your parents had for you. Right here, right here is the first time we see anybody get renamed in the Bible, and, it, and it's pretty significant. Abram's original name meant exalted father. His new name is literally translated from Hebrew as exalted father. So it seems that the text implies his new name means father of many nations. But the names really, in actuality, are only phonetically different. In, in true definition, they're exactly the same. So, what is the, so if they both mean the same thing, then what's the purpose of the change? Uh, I like what Bible scholar Tim Mackey has to say on this. He brings up an interesting point on the subject. The Hebrew word for multitude is hamon. And no, I'm not going to try and pronounce that in actual Hebrew. So in changing Abram's name in the original pronunciation, he's changing it to Abraham. So it's, it's a link here, subtly, but it's a link back to the idea of multitudes of nations, the Abraham as Abrahamon. It's kind of like a nickname of sorts. Saying King Richard the Lionheart is another example. The original name's meaning is still intact, but now every time Richard... Here's his name spoken. It's a reminder of his victories and his prowess in battle. Only with Abraham, when he hears his name, it doesn't evoke memories of his worthiness or his power. It is intended to draw to the mind promises and faithfulness of his God Almighty. On top of giving a name or on top of this, giving a name or renaming was only done by somebody who had the authority to do so. God granted Adam the authority to name the animals as an extension of his command to subdue the earth, but God reserved the authority to name the light, the dark, the land, and the sky. In a few chapters, God renames Abraham's grandson from Jacob to Israel, and in the New Testament, we see Jesus renamed Simon to Peter. So, in addition to the purpose that the name's meaning implies, God is also making a statement of his authority over Abraham. Initially, Abram's father, Terah, had the authority to, to name his own son. Now, however, God is proclaiming that Abram is no longer his own man or the son of Terah. In effect, God is taking over the authority. He is saying, you are mine, and I will make you the father of many nations, not of your own scheming, 
but of my faithfulness and sovereignty and generosity. And also, as a quick heads up, kind of a signpost here, there's a subtle but key phrase change in the newest version of the covenant that God just repeats. The previous one in chapter 15 is, states that he is to be the father of nations. But right here, God uses the wording father of many nations. So hold on to that, and we'll be back to it later on. All right, back to verse 6. I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. So again, God is referring to the covenant. And he is ensuring that Abraham is clear that it is God and that is from God and God's goodness, not Abraham's worthiness. He keeps using the, uh, God keeps using the phrase, my covenant, as in not yours, not ours, but mine with you. Also in this speech, God is going to continue to expand on the covenant benefits and what Abraham can look forward to. Not only will there be many descendants, but nations and kings will come from him. He reiterates that the land he is in will be his and his offsprings. And best yet, he will be his God and the God of his descendants. The Hebrew word for permanent here that the author uses is designed to convey the idea that in God's eyes, this is not an agreement until something better or someone better comes along. Again, it's not hinged on Abraham's worthiness. As far as God is concerned, there is no other alternative envisioned. He is in it for the long haul. He says that this covenant will carry on throughout their generations. So he's saying he will be their God forever. Verse nine. God also said to Abraham, as for you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. So up until now, there was no responsibilities placed on Abraham or his offspring. This was a unilateral covenant by God to Abraham and his family. But as is God's style, he's not merely about making promises and following through with them, although that's pretty awesome. Here he pivots from the unilateral agreement and lays out the covenant response in order to fulfill the promise as, as the covenant. He does as he always has and offers to enter into the long, sure to be frustrating and painful process of building relationships with us. And next in the lineup, it's Abraham. So what are his terms? Well, here's the answer in verse 10. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner or not of your offspring. Whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, this man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Well, here it is. To quote Mel Brooks from the Robin Hood Men in Tights movie, nip the tip. That's what he's requiring. <laughs> I told you it wasn't gonna be the last. Um, so is this just another strange culture or custom in the Old Testament, or are there actual purposes that are deeper than what our surface understanding is? 
Well, it's not obvious from what we read here, but circumcision was not invented in the Bible, nor was it even new to Abraham. In fact, it was fairly commonplace in the Near East, and many of Israel's neighbors practiced it. It usually served as a rite of passage, as in puberty, or often related to marriage rites. And here's a fun fact. When performed in the context of marriage, it was likely done to the groom by his new male in-laws. So, talk about family bonding. Uh, okay. So now, we see here that God takes this ritual used to symbolize the transition into a new season, and he repurposes it to facilitate the entrance into a covenant community with him. And why is it a sign of the covenant, or why is a sign of the covenant even necessary? If this was initiated by divine inspiration and not from a human earning or by human request, then shouldn't the covenant stand as long as God is in rule of heaven and earth? I mean, look back at chapter 12 where Abraham disobeyed foolishly and endangered his wife. God still honored his word, even though Abraham didn't deserve it. So what's God's angle? Simply, it's relationship. But in relationship, there's a response that's required. Otherwise, again, it's just unilateral. One-sided blessings don't create relationship. They create entitlement. So God requires Abraham to step up and prove his commitment to him and to their new covenant by responding in obedience. He also gives, he also gives this as a way for those who are not born into Abraham's family to enter into the covenant blessing if they want to. That's the part about people not of your household, not born in your household, being able to or having to get circumcised. God is again just demonstrating his inclusivity. This is in one way, God giving Abraham and those in his household, whether in his lineage or not, some ownership of the agreement. Or said another way, now Abraham has some skin in the game. This is just, this is just one side of the multidimensional sign of circumcision. Another important question is, why would God choose to use the act of circumcision as the symbol for the covenant? Well, this is actually addressed in God's first phrase at the beginning of the chapter. Live in my presence and be blameless. It's no coincidence that right before this in the last chapter, we hear about Abraham and Sarah's use of Hagar to bear their promised heir. And we talked about how using a slave like this would have been a cultural norm or maybe even an expectation of that time. As the original hearers would have been navigating through this, they wouldn't have questioned it or even be as offended as we are today. In fact, there's nothing actually said as to the morality of that decision in and of itself. But there is hinting that this was outside of God's plan. And there are also narrative clues, which Zach covered last week, that show clearly how Abraham and Sarah's mistreatment of Hagar is not in line with God's standards, and nor is it okay. And we see this confirmed by God again as he revisits Abraham. His opening command is to live blamelessly, not kneel before me or worship me or honor me, just live, or in some translations, walk blamelessly. This isn't the most common opener that we would see in the Old Testament writing, so there must be a reason for it. Well, it's directly on the heels of the story about Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. So in effect, He's saying, stop this nonsense. Stop this and be blameless. Now here we see him present the sign of circumcision immediately after. We also see, or we also see it in the way that this 
chapter and chapters like it are designed. In Genesis 16 and 17, the design and the language that they use parallels the flood story of Noah. And when this happens in Hebrew literature, the intent is for them to be used as a commentary on each other, using lessons and themes derived from each to uh, analyze the other. So both Noah and Abraham are described, described as the father of nations. And both are the only ones so far in the Bible to have an everlasting covenant with God. The basic thematic elements of the story, the framework I was talking about a minute ago, are that humanity does awful things. God judges them, then he reaffirms his promise even though they don't deserve it, and then he provides a sign using an element of that to symbolize his judgment and his promise. So let's look back at Noah. We'll cover a few of the elements kind of quickly. First, in the story of Noah, the people had ruined the land with bloodshed and violence. And God chooses Noah, but he cuts off the rest of humanity from the land with the destruction from the storm and the flood. Then, as a symbol of his covenant promise, he presents a a rainbow and promises that he will never do that again. The symbol of the rainbow includes both the remembrance of the judgment seen in the flood and in the storm, and also a sign of God's merciful promise to never do it again. This is his restoration. So now in in parallel, we see in Abraham's story, the harm perpetrated on Hagar by Abraham and Sarah's parallels the bloodshed and the violence in the land of Noah. The phrase to cut off is used in Noah, and it's also used here. It's literally the same one used to describe Abraham's circumcision, and this is the very next usage of it. So we're looking back and we're starting to see and pick up on these parallels. The part of Abraham's body that he used to hurt his Egyptian slave is to be cut off as a sign of the covenant. So again, we see the sign of the covenant is remembrance of judgment while yet is being used as a symbol of God's mercy. What Abraham and Sarah did in their own power, God is correcting and reclaiming. The part of his body used to harm is the same part that God used, that God will use to faithfully fulfill his promise. But God places his mark on that part. It's as if God is saying, hey, that thing you got there, you've been using it incorrectly. It's mine now, and from here on out, I will use it to bring about my intended promise. Your future, the one I promise you, depends on me and my power and my faithfulness. Back to verse 15. God said to Abraham, as for your wife Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her indeed. I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell face down and then he laughed and said to himself, can a child be born to a 100-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? Wait, what's going on here? Abraham is talking to the one true God Almighty, the God who's rescued him several times before, the one who's upheld his original promise even when Abraham didn't obey, and the one who continues to step up the blessings every time he interacts with Abraham. Yet this, this is too unbelievable. Well, it might be my natural inclination to judge Abraham, 
but I and we have the benefit of hindsight. And it's easy to forget the amount of time that has passed between the last chapter and this one. Like I said, 13 to 14 years later. In chapter 16, we are simply told that Abraham had a son by Hagar. And since the authors do not say whether this was right or wrong, we should assume that Abraham was probably blindsided by this new revelation. In his mind, in his mind, he's already got his heir. In fact, for 13 years, he's lived with his son. No mention of rebuke or correction from God until this moment. He must have thought, good thing we got that business about an heir all taken care of. For 13 years, he's been planning on Ishmael fulfilling the covenant. He's committed to the idea that this was what God talked about all along. He would have likely been grooming Ishmael as the heir that he thought he was to be. So he's understandably taken off guard and probably really let down. And I can actually understand this quite a bit. I'm too often guilty of resisting any change in my plans, whether good or bad. I get so caught up in thinking that what's best that I miss the other viable options and forget about being aware of things that might seem impossible. As most of you know, I work in medicine, but that was not originally on my radar. Over 20 years ago, I was going to be a mechanical engineer. But over the course of 10 or 12 years, God changed my direction to medicine, or as some of your children may know me, bug expert. Starting from mechanical engineering to sign making to firefighting to raptor train. Oh, wait, no, sorry, that was the movie. The point is that he had patience with my rigidity and still purposed me for his kingdom. And he is still graciously and patiently changing this about me. Every day he continues to prove his faithfulness and that his ways are always, always better. Back in verse 18. So Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. It's kind of like he's saying, hey, look, I already did it. I took care of it. We have Ishmael. If only he was good enough in your sight, we could just move forward. Verse 19. God said, no, your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covenant for his future offspring. So God rejects Ishmael's line because this would be condoning what Abraham did to Hagar saying that the result of Abraham and Sarah's scheming is acceptable in his sight, saying that abuse is okay. Instead, he's going to bring about Isaac by his divine power so that he will be glorified, that his purposes will, be, will remain and not Abraham's. Next, God says to name him Isaac, which literally means one who laughs. I, just, I think this is great. God takes Abraham's disbelieving and and disrespectful laughter from verse 17 and uses it to name the child that will be the living proof that God is the one who actually is in charge of fulfilling the covenant that he first promised. So verse 20, as for Ishmael, I've heard you. I will certainly bless him. I will make him fruitful and I will multiply him gratefully. He will father 12 tribal leaders, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will confirm my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. Wow. God, in his faithfulness to Abraham, hears Abraham's plea for his son and honors that commitment. Even though Ishmael is not the intended heir, he will be blessed also. His first promise was to bless Abraham and his descendants, and this is what he's doing. 
So again, he is continuing to be faithful despite Abraham taking detours and not being true to what God's original plan was intending. Even though Isaac will be the lineage and the vehicle of blessing to all the nations, Ishmael will be blessed as the father of 12 nations. There's no argument or condemnation from God towards Ishmael as a mistake. Instead, he blesses him. He blesses him too, without hesitation. This is again proof of God's bigness. And it's a look back to what I hinted at earlier when I said, hold on to this. He changes the wording of the original covenant from father of many to the current covenant as father of many nations. So we have Abraham, sorry, we have Isaac, and we have Ishmael. Many nations now. In his commentary, author John Walton says, are Abraham's sentiments misplaced? Were those 13 years wasted? Was Ishmael a mistake? The answer is a resounding no on all three counts. Even though sometimes what we see as solutions turns out to be more obstacles for God to deal with, that doesn't mean that God disapproves of the paths we seek out or that we should start feeling regrets for wasted time. With, with God, there are no dead ends, only training grounds. As long as we are not ignoring his signals or indulging in our self-will, we can be sure he is shaping us for his service. So this just further highlights one of the important messages here, that God's plans are bigger than our control, and that as long as we seek him first and obey him, nothing is lost that can't be redeemed by him. Verse 22. When Abraham finished talking with him, or when he finished talking with him, God withdrew from Abraham. So Abraham took his son Ishmael and those born in his household or purchased, every male among the members of Abraham's household, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin on that very day, just as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13 years old when the flesh of his skin if his foreskin was circumcised. On that very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his household, whether born in his household, whether born in his household or purchased from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So apparently, even at 99, Abraham wasn't past the cutoff. Last one, I swear. Actually, this last section gives us some hope that Abraham is starting to understand things between him, God, him and God a little bit better. We aren't told his thoughts like we were in verse 17, and it doesn't say anything, or at least we're not told that he says anything, but more importantly, we are told that his, his obedience is swift. And on top of that, we're told that his obedience was complete. He immediately does what he is supposed to do, but he also does it exactly the way he is supposed to do it, which is in stark contrast to the way he's been living up until now. He is sure to obey every letter of the command. The text makes it a point. The text makes it a point to recap the completeness of Abraham's obedience by repeating that him, his son Ishmael, and every male in his household, whether born or purchased, was circumcised that day. This was a sign that whether, whether or not Abraham could fully grasp what God was going to do or how he was going to do it, Abraham now trusted to the point of obedience. And to highlight this, the text reads, that very day. This is written here to signal that this moment is of the highest importance and is only used elsewhere in the Old Testament for days that are noteworthy. As an example, it's used in the flood narrative to describe the day the flood came. 
And it's also used to describe the day that the Israelites left Egypt. So what does this mean for us today? Is this meaning that we, are, we all have to be circumcised? No, absolutely not. In fact, the New Testament is pretty clear on the subject. One of the best discourses on this is in Acts chapter 15. Here's a brief selection where Peter is addressing some Pharisees who claim that Gentile Christians need to be circumcised. But this is just a small bit. And the whole chapter is actually worth a good read if you have other questions. Peter says, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, referring to the uncircumcised Gentile Christian. Just as he did this to us, he made no distinction between them and us, cleansing their heart by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' neck that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of Lord, Lord Jesus in the same way as they are. So no, I think this section in Genesis shows us the importance of committed response to God. Just like I said earlier, it's about relationship and response. Just like with Abraham, God wants to bless us. And even more importantly, he wants to bless others through us. Earlier, we talked about symbols in ancient Hebrew culture that represent covenant promises, symbols of judgment and of mercy, symbols that give hope of current redemption and future faithfulness. Well, we have that example in Jesus. His death and crucifixion demonstrates the just judgment that he willingly received on our behalf, that he mercifully spared us. The empty tomb is the hope of the current and future redemption in his power. So, If circumcision doesn't hold the same necessity, what is the sign that we are supposed to bear of this new covenant? It's love. In Matthew 22, 37 through 40, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Or in John, when he's talking to his disciples, he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So let's wear the love of Christ as the sign of the new covenant that he made us. All right. So I realized I said we're going to do Q&R. I never grabbed the phone. Yes. Okay, we're not doing Q&R. <laughs> Unless, unless anybody wants to stand up and ask a question. Really put me on the spot. Okay. Well, like I said, Zach's always really good about addressing these questions, and he usually uses it as the starting off point for his weekly emails. Uh, so the band can come back up, and we're going to transition from this time about learning ancient rites and passages into uh, the practice of communion. You know, we discussed earlier the features in the original covenants, which are already fulfilled. And now we get to enjoy the new covenant in Christ. The renewal that we have if we are saved by him. This act of communion is a sign of the new covenant that Jesus tells us we are to do this in remembrance of him. That we are entering into time with him. And in Luke, he says, this is my body broken for you. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. So as you come up and take the bread or the juice, the the bread and the juice of the wine per your conscience and head back to your seat, 
I challenge you to spend a few moments enjoying his presence and experiencing his love. As always, the prayer rugs are available uh, if you want to change the posture of your body during this time. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.